Welcome to She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie Sutton, a 19-year-old from the Bay Area studying psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. She Persisted is the teen mental health podcast made for teenagers by a teen. In each episode, I'll bring you authentic, accessible, and relatable conversations about every aspect of mental wellness. You can expect evidence-based teen-approved resources, coping skills, including lots of DBT, insights, and education in each piece of content you consume. She Persisted offers you a safe space to feel validated and understood in your struggle while encouraging you to take ownership of your journey and build your life worth living. So let's dive in. This week on She Persisted. Often I'll hear from young people, but I don't need a therapist. I have friends. And my response to that is that friends are wonderful. They're really important. I want you to have them and I want you to talk to your friends about the important things in your life. But your friends are just that, they're your friends. Your therapist is there to be supportive of you, but also push on you at times. And therapy may be uncomfortable at times, but you need an objective outside person who can tell you what it is. Hello, hello, and welcome back to She Persisted. I am so excited for this episode. This is one of my most highly requested topics. It's something I'm constantly getting questions about via email and DMs and on the question submission form which is parents that are looking for guidance on how to find their teen treatment and then for teens, what to expect from that process. So we've brought in an expert. Today's guest is Dr. Justin Mohat. He is an internationally recognized Harvard-trained double board certified psychiatrist. He specializes in anxiety, OCD, and tick disorders in childhood, adolescence, and emerging adulthood. He is an expert in complex case formulation and medication management and works heavily on the treatment side of things. He works at a treatment program, so he answered all of my questions about what to expect and what to know if you are navigating this process, both as a parent and as a teen. So for parents, what to look for in treatment programs, what questions to ask them, what are the non-negotiables, what are the things that are nice to have, tips to get your teen to be an active participant and to be motivated to get treatment, especially when they're not necessarily motivated initially, and how to approach the treatment process. So like, what can you expect from quote unquote getting treatment? And then for teens, what can you expect when you are pursuing intensive treatment? What Justin wishes that teens were aware of when they start treatment and a bunch of myths that he wanted to debunk. So if there are any anxieties you have about this experience, we debunk all of those. So this is an amazing conversation. It really fills a need that I haven't touched on before and she persisted, which are these questions that teens and parents have from an expert perspective. So I'm so excited about this. You are going to love it. So with that, let's dive in. Thank you so much for coming on She Persisted today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. We're going to talk about some of my most frequently asked questions, and I know this episode is going to be such a resource for so many people. So thank you for sitting down with me. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm very flattered that you asked me. Of course, of course. No, I am very excited to pick your brain about all things teen treatment and get the adolescent perspective and the parent perspective because it really does feel like a black box almost until you're within the treatment world. You're like, I don't know what to expect. Like, what's the difference between IOP and intensive treatment and residential? And there's no set path. So hopefully with this conversation, we can provide a little bit of clarity and less uncertainty for any families that are navigating this. You said that so well. I think that so much of our field is exactly that, a black box. And people spend days on the internet trying to search 
they get word of mouth and somebody says, oh, this person is really good. You should go see them. But they have no idea if that person is good for what they need. And one person can be really good at one thing and not know anything about another thing. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think we've been working very hard in the places that I've most recently been been at to try and create systems that are more transparent and easy yeah. to navigate and to help families through that process. Absolutely. So I'm thinking we split this between advice for parents and advice for teens because the questions are very different. For teens, it's more like anxiety of what is this going to be like and what is this process like? And for parents, a lot of the times it's like, how do I find a treatment program or what can I do to support my teen? So to start with parents, I'd love to get your thoughts on what the typical treatment trajectory looks like. Obviously, everyone's experience is very different. I always am like, my 14 months in treatment are probably something no one else will ever experience because everyone goes a different route. But there are some things that I think are similar with looking for programs and maybe going from a more outpatient setting to a more inpatient setting, these common themes. So I'd love to kind of understand what steps families typically go through when they are navigating teen mental health treatment? Well, I think that families often start with complete confusion and yeah. lack of any idea where to begin. And then, you know, I, I think some families find their way to some sort of mental health provider. But I, I also think that the best resource for most families as a starting place is their primary care physician. You have a trusted relationship with that person. Theoretically, they know you, they know your family. They are essentially mandated at this point to be screening for things like depression and anxiety in kids. And depending where you are, sometimes they are screening for suicidality and and self-harm. So that's a really good starting place because even if they aren't going to be the people to deliver any sort of intervention or care, they know the community and they will typically have trusted people that they know to work with in the area. And they also will know things like how long does it take to get in typically to somebody. And and frankly, a lot of primary care doctors can treat some things. And so you may not need to wait to get into a child mental health clinician to start something. And then you can move forward with things like outpatient treatment, yeah. which typically that first step. I'm going to put up just a plug in for kind of early identification of challenges the kids are having, because the earlier we can get in there, and this is again, where pediatricians and primary care doctors can be so key, the easier it is to intervene and and make a difference. And so if you need outpatient treatment, then the next step is identifying a local therapist or psychiatrist. And that's, I think, another place where families get confused. Like, do we need a psychiatrist? Do we need a therapist? Do we need and a I psychiatrist who does therapy? Because that's an right? option. Exactly. Yeah. And some people, by virtue of maybe their own history or just the community they live in, think that, you know, you, you have to have a psychiatrist that does everything. And I think in different parts of the country, there are different models of treatment. I worked for a long time in the Northeast where that model of one psychiatrist doing everything is more common. In lots of the country, that is not typical. And and I would say that what's more important than somebody's credentials is their experience and how much time they spend doing this. You can have a highly trained psychiatrist who went to medical school, did residency, fellowship, 
work and somewhere. And you're their first sick. patient. <laughs> they just, they're on their, their own. <laughs> yeah. Or you're not their first patient, but they don't really do therapy very much. Yeah. And you really want a therapist who does what you need them to do every day. A hundred percent. And even just the demographics of do they work with teens or is their target demographic normally adults? Because those challenges that you're experiencing are probably really different. Are they more experienced with navigating anxiety versus depression? Like all of these are different specialties and things to kind of keep an eye out for. And I love what you mentioned about pediatricians because that's exactly where I started my journey. I've said that on the podcast so many times, like went into my pediatrician appointment, they did the depression screening and I was like, all of those, all of the above is happening. And then from there, I went to a psychiatrist and worked with other people, but it really is a great first step. And like you mentioned, being able to be aware of things that maybe aren't aren't going so well really early on in the process and then make shifts and get resources. And the other great thing about having your pediatrician clued in is every single time you go in for their annual, they're checking up on how things are going. How are things going with medication? Or how are things going with meeting with a therapist? What are your responses to these questions looking like compared to a year ago? Whereas if you meet with a psychiatrist one time, but then you just completely fall off that train and never go and and return to those appointments, the pediatrician is at least following up in a consistent way. Absolutely. Yeah. So for parents that have received the recommendation that their teen might benefit from an intensive mental health care program, whether it's a residential or a longer term program where they're looking beyond just their their local psychiatrist and therapist or pediatrician, like we mentioned, what things do you look for in a treatment program, whether it is non-negotiables, whether it's staff, whether it is different types of therapy, things that are nice to have. But when you are looking at a program, what things are, are you keeping an eye out for to make sure that it's a great fit for a patient? Yeah. I mean, I guess my first thought, which doesn't really answer your question, is just what are all those different levels of care? Because yeah. I think families don't even know that, but I, I imagine your listeners have heard what these different levels of care are over time. So I, I think the first thing is figuring out what level do you need, right? Yeah. So there's everything from regular outpatient care to intensive outpatient treatment or intensive treatment programs, which might be like two to three days a week for a couple hours at a time up to sort of half-day programs to partial hospital programs that are essentially the school day five days a week to residential treatment, which is kind of longer term, but voluntary treatment and unlocked places, and then inpatient treatment being the highest level mm-hmm. of care. But to your question about what to look for, I have a couple big things that I really wish families would hear. One is just because a place is the most expensive place doesn't mean it's the best place. And just because it's in the most beautiful setting doesn't mean- And has horses doesn't mean it'll be the best. (laughs) Has horses, has an ocean view, has like, I think families can easily get romanced by some of that because it's so scary to have your child go away somewhere. So to say, okay, well, the place is really expensive. It looks really nice. That doesn't necessarily mean high quality care. Yeah. The other thing I would say is be wary of programs that promise everything. If you look at their materials and they say they basically treat everything under the spectrum with evidence-based treatments, and it's highly unlikely that they really are that specialized in all of those different things. I would much prefer to have a program that says we do this and this very well, and this is our modality. 
you want to ask them what modalities of treatment they use, and they should be able to answer that clearly. Here's an easy example, which is I often see patients who say that they've been getting cognitive behavioral therapy for their anxiety disorder, but it's not getting better and it's not helping. And I ask them, well, what are you doing in your therapy? And it turns out that largely what they're getting is supportive psychotherapy with some sort of instruction on how to do deep breathing and maybe some psychoeducation on not avoiding anxiety-provoking situations. But not CBT. (laughs) Not getting full-fledged CBT, and they're not getting the core key treatment to CBT, which is exposure therapy. So you want to educate yourself ahead of these conversations about your kid's diagnosis and what the best treatments are for that, and then ask very pointed questions about it. What are those questions that you would ask if you could give like three to five that they could bring to their intake meeting? They're on the phone, they're screening these programs. What would you ask? That's a really hard question to answer simply because I think it's so dependent on what a particular young person is struggling Mm -hmm. with, what those questions. So what if we said like a teen is struggling, like you me, a teen is struggling with depression, self-harm, has tried outpatient, inpatient at home, the recommendation is residential care, history of self-harm and suicidal ideation, and have tried outpatient DBT and then intensive outpatient, but as far as residential, what the recommendation is, we no, we don't know. Do we need a DBT intensive program? Do we need like a therapeutic boarding school for residential? So the next step is residential. The background is depression, anxiety, those behaviors. So what questions would you ask different residential programs? Well, I think the first thing I'd want to know, given the history you're describing, is whether the program I I would sort of start with an open-ended question, knowing what I want the answer to be. And so my question would be, you know, what modality of treatment do you use in your program? And Mm -hmm. listen to what they say. And what I would want them to say is that they use a combination of dialectical behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. And that they sort of address safety concerns first. And so the first treatment would probably be DBT. And then when when safety is off the table, then you can work on the depression and the anxiety. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for sure to kind of just have those exact labels of what to listen for and to ask that open-ended question because, I mean, it's, it's so crazy that you even have to think about how these things are marketed and kind of see through when they're like, oh, we offer everything. And it's like, well, what do you really offer? And when you said that, it reminded me of this marketing strategy where it's when things advertise themselves as like the Cheesecake Factory, where they offer anything and everything you could possibly ever want to eat, but nothing on the menu is really that great. And so you can think of treatment programs that way, where if they're offering anything and everything to possibly be treated, they're probably not going to be that great at all of those different things. So to listen for those key terms is super helpful rather than going in and being like, do you offer DBT? Because my parents did that when we were looking for therapeutic boarding schools and the therapeutic boarding school was like, yes, of course we do. But then once I went there, they did not offer DBT. Right. Well, you know, and I think specifically with DBT, I would want to know, and this is very kind of technical, but yeah. are, your, are your therapists DBT certified with behavior tech? You know, are you really DBT therapists? Do you provide full fidelity DBT? And because anyone can say they do 
anything. They may do DBT-informed treatment, and in some situations that might be appropriate. But if you're talking about residential care and you're talking about chronic sort of self-injury and depression, you really want that full fidelity. Yeah. And it's also so helpful to remember that a lot of these different evidence-based treatments are proven to be evidence-based under very specific conditions. So like with DBT, you're doing a very specific six-week course of learning a certain number of skills with your therapist working in tandem with a certain number of other therapists, and you are approaching your challenges in therapy with a very specific hierarchy, and you're also meeting with a psychiatrist. Like All of these details are very clearly laid out, and that is what is shown to be effective. The idea of like me on the podcast when I teach you a DBT skill, it's not what's evidence-based to heal depression. Like it's just a fun thing that might make you feel a little bit better to accumulate some positives in your life. But it's that like superset criteria that is shown to be evidence-based. So you have to make sure that the treatment programs are using that set criteria that has been proven to be effective and not just like pulling little ideas from here and there to, to try and support people. There's a really interesting and important research study that was done several years ago now mm-hmm. at comparing sort of psychoeducation, like providing education about cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. to doing full-fledged cognitive behavioral therapy to medications, trying to look at what's realistic for primary care doctors to do, right? They can't do a CBT session in their 10, 15 minutes. With yeah, you. well, they're like also checking I, to make sure you can like bend your knee correctly. Right. Like, let's check the nose, let's do some exposure therapy. Nuggets of information yeah. and does that move the needle? And unfortunately, it was not as effective as, which is what you would expect. But, but I think that that's often what happens. People provide a little education about CBT, but they don't really do yeah. full CBT with exposure. Yeah. If there were two to three non-negotiables that you would want to make sure we're at a treatment program for parents to look for, whether it's like a psychiatrist on staff or a certain evidence-based intervention, maybe it's like a number of patients or how long the treatment facility has been open, a certain like accreditation. There's so many different potential things, but if you had to choose some non-negotiables where you're like at the very minimum, a program should have this, what would that be? Yeah, and and you're speaking to some really tricky things because state by state, the regulations around residential treatment are widely varying. So residential can be fully accredited or or regulated, but depending on the state and the size of the program, that can be vastly different things. I'm sure this is making your listeners very anxious as I'm saying it. But I know I just released literally as we're recording this, the episode that went out this week is about the troubled teen industry. So luckily there's going to be some time before this episode comes out. But like in that episode, an example of what accredited a program was how many toilets they had and the ratio to students. It's like there's uh-huh. a there's some discrepancy here on what accreditation means. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, I think the the most important things from my perspective are that they involve family. And that's yeah. for a couple of reasons. One is if you are a program that doesn't communicate with parents, that doesn't involve parents and family in treatment, and you're doing this sort of bubble of something with a kid, and then you say, okay, we're done, and you send them home and you've never done anything to change the environment, then you're setting everyone up for failure in yeah. that circumstance. So 
I think number one for me is that family is, is very involved in the treatment in, mm-hmm. in whatever way is possible. That may be virtual because the family can't be where the kid is at, but that it is built into the program. And it's not just we'll check in once a week for an hour or you call us if you have any <laughs> issues, right? Yeah. You'd be surprised what can happen out there. So I think that's really critical. I think that, again, evidence-based treatments, but not every evidence-based treatment under the sun. So, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, for a kid who has depression, who has self-injury, has a lot of emotion regulation difficulties, a no go would be if they didn't have a true dbt program yeah if you have a kid who has obsessive compulsive disorder or a severe anxiety disorder you want a program that is an exposure-based cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. program and they should be able to talk to you about what that actually looks like and how they deploy that 100 so you want evidence-based treatments for the thing that your child is struggling yeah. And you can even ask them like, oh, can you send the the research that supports this intervention that you're using? I remember I asked my therapeutic boarding school that one time after I'd left and they sent me a paper talking about how nature can be good for mental health. And I was like, okay, but this is not what I my parents signed up for when they were like, we'd like a long-term transitional program that can help her like maintain mental health, continue to maintain DBT skills and not be depressed and suicidal. Like they were not optimizing for exposure to nature. So ask them if they can send you studies that support this intervention in the adolescent population and show good results. And you don't have to read the entire study. We're not like, please spend all your time reading 12 studies. But if they can't provide that, that's immediately like red flag. Yeah. And I think the other thing is you you want transparency. So if you're getting any sense that they're sort of skirting around questions and they're not giving you very clear answers, I would be really wary. Yeah. I I think that this may be hard and you may not get a satisfactory answer, but it's worth at least asking what their internal quality kind of process is and if they have any data or statistics on the success of their yeah. program. Absolutely. And they should be able to produce something. Yeah. From the professional standpoint, should parents have to sign over their custody when their child gets mental health treatment? Should sit. Well, you can tell by my answer. (laughs) You're like, what? Um, That's a thing? (laughs) No, absolutely. Yeah. Not a standard of care. And I have to remind people of that because like I... My parents found the most amazing DBT program in Boston. And then four months later, I also went to a program in Montana. And when they were like, okay, sign over 51%, my parents were like, okay. Like, they're very smart people. They knew what they were talking about. And yet some of these, again, it's a black box. Like, from Mm -hmm. the outside, you would be like, oh, well, my kid is living there for a year. So maybe they would need 51%, but they don't. That's uh-huh. a, a myth. <laughs> not a thing, or it shouldn't be a thing. It should not be a thing. Today's episode is brought to you by Teen Counseling. Teen Counseling is BetterHelp's online therapy program for teens. They have over 14,000 licensed therapists within their network, and they offer support on things like depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and so much more. You guys know that therapy was a huge part of my mental health journey. It's a resource that was absolutely essential for me to recover, maintain my mental health, improve my emotion regulation, distress tolerance, all of the things. 
So if you would like to try meeting with a therapist or find a new therapist to meet with, you can go to teencounseling.com slash superassisted. They offer talk, text, and video counseling all from your home, so no need to be on a super long wait list to find a therapist. They will also meet you exactly where you're at with what level of support you're looking for. So to check out teen counseling, you can go to teencounseling.com slash superassisted to find a therapist that meets your needs today. The last question I wanted to ask from the parents' perspective is so many, and this is hard to answer because when I get asked this, I'm like, I don't even know what to tell you because the question is, how can I get my teen to want to be motivated to make changes and want to get better when they're like not wanting to go to treatment, which was exactly where I was at. And I think my most recent response is just be there to support your child, explain to them that you want to see them feel better. And then the professionals are the one that can help cultivate that willingness and help provide some hope on how things can shift. But that's a lot to ask of a parent to be like, let's get your kid from absolutely not wanting to make any changes to be so motivated and engaged in treatment. But for a parent who's like, I I know my kid needs help, but they are just so not at the point of being motivated to do that. Do you have any advice or validation or wisdom that you can kind of offer? Because it's so common in this process. I feel like I just want to ask you the question back because I, I, yeah. I do think that if I knew the answer to that, I would be the the world's most famous child. <laughs> like, yeah. I, just, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think ultimately where I see it fall apart is when it becomes a tug of war. And if yeah. if parents can try and not take the bait, so to speak, and, and not have it turn into a war about it mm-hmm. and come from a place of compassion and validation yeah. and not that that's going to be immediately successful but you're going to start moving the needle if it yeah. just becomes no you need to do this and it it becomes a sort of butting of heads then you're not going to get anywhere yeah. i mean I, I do think that I've certainly been in situations where for a variety of reasons, a young person, often it's substance related, is just not in a place to make a good decision for themselves. And so parents have had to make really difficult decisions to sort of send their kids away against their will. And sometimes that ends up going well because they get clean and the kid gets perspective and sees things from a different way. Sometimes it doesn't go Mm -hmm. so well. Ideally, you get to a place where it's a shared decision-making process. And I think as therapists, we try and use motivational enhancement, motivational interviewing strategies to kind of help young people and parents sometimes get to a place where they can see that the benefits of doing something outweigh the fears that they have to get the young person to realize that. Because I often feel like when a kid is refusing to do something, it's not because they just don't want to do it. It's because they've, they've lost hope that anything Oh, 100%. Difference. And so what you're really coming up against is hopelessness more, and it comes out as oppositional yeah. kind of, or defiant behavior. Yeah, or even fear. I remember I was like tooth and nail, I will not do a sleep study. Like I was already in residential treatment, I'd agreed to all these things, but it came to the sleep study. For some reason, I was anxious. And I'm like, this is where the, the hammer's coming down, I'm not going. And so it's kind of unraveling that and being like, what's behind that? Because 
I mean, any kid who's really struggling, like if they knew that on the other side was happiness and joy and stability, of course they would get to that point, but there's just not always a clear path forward. And so I love that perspective of trying to see what is going on beneath the surface and seeing beyond that like opposition, if you will. Yeah, I really believe in compassion and and in that is sort of self-compassion. I think parents have to give themselves sort of some grace and some sense of like, this is a really bad situation and I may not always have handled it well, but I can do things differently going forward and not just get stuck in a rut. Yeah. And so much self-validation because I can't even imagine what it's like as a parent to see your child struggle so much and feel like you don't know how you can help them. And whether it's guilt or shame or just sadness, that's a lot to go through as a parent let alone as a child. And so I feel like I, I completely, that was lost on me when I was going through this process, how how hard this was for my parents and how I wasn't the only one that was struggling in this process, that it really does take a toll on the whole family. And so resources for parents too, because it's not an easy journey. I also think that this process can go better if this comes back to family-focused treatment. If treatment yeah. all along the way isn't about a kid being in a room with a therapist and then getting a report out or not from the therapist afterward, like really incorporating family into everything that's done from a treatment standpoint, that's what we try and yeah. do at our center is have family at, at the core of everything that we're doing. Like in our partial hospital program, we have one day a week where the entire family is required to be there. Yeah. I love that. And it's not just a family meeting each week with the therapist. It's a whole day where the family's getting DBT skills. And so. Yeah. No, I asked my parents a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to some parents about like advice for teens and supporting your teen. And before I gave the talk, I was like, okay, parents, what are the advice? This is your chance to to throw some advice for parents that are going through it. And the one advice was that this works so much better if the parents learn the skills alongside the teen. Because if anything, it doesn't hurt for you both to get more skillful and for you both to be more effective in the relationship. And that you also just are able to empathize on another level. You have the shared experience of navigating this. And my parents and I are now big DBT nerds whenever we're navigating anything. Or I have something to do. My mom's like, hey, bring out the deer man. I'm like, I know. Uh I've learned this also. Totally. And and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? So if you're asking an anxious parent to do exposure therapy with their anxious kid and the parent is so anxious they can't do it, you're not going to get anywhere. So you have to teach everyone these skills to get any movement. A hundred percent. So for teens, I think one of the biggest things that I remember is just how daunting of an experience this is. It's so anxiety provoking because a lot of the times you don't know what to expect and once you get there I feel like it's better because you're in it with other teens like you're not alone in this they it's a very a lot of the times a very welcoming experience tons of teens have been through this process so they know how to orient people and do the little tour and introduce you to other kids or teens probably not kids but it's very anxiety provoking to know that you're going to be going to a program or an outpatient program or a therapy session but not know what that looks like or what to expect so if you could give just some basic pointers of what to expect whether it's like you can probably expect to on the first day kind of go through 
why you're here and, and what's happened thus far. Or maybe it's you'll orient to like what your family system is like, or you, you probably will learn some skills, but just kind of providing a little bit of insight into what goes on again in this like black box of a world that teens oftentimes haven't had any experience with. I think the first thing would be to say what it is not, right? I yeah. think that a lot of teens are thinking that if they go to residential treatment, it's going to a locked hospital. I Googled know. McLean and it was like asylum from the 1800s. And I was like, great, right. perfect. <laughs> yeah. Terrified. And, exactly. And that's not what residential treatment is. Yeah. And it's not what intensive outpatient treatment is. Yeah. And there is a place for inpatient treatment, but if you're family is trying to get you help in a voluntary way at a specialized program, it's going to be an unlocked unit. It's going to be everyone's there voluntarily. It's going to be, again, if it's the right program, it's going to be kids your age, right? So that's a thing. I mean, hopefully it isn't a program that has commingled kids of all different ages. That's another that regulation should prevent. But yeah, I think you're not going to be asked to strip down. You're not going to be asked to be in scrubs. You're not going to have all of your worldly belongings taken away from you. Yeah. You know, they are going to want to understand what's bringing you in. They're going to want to understand if there are safety concerns, depending on why you're going into treatment. But even if you're going in for something that's not about self-harm or suicidality, they're going to be asking you those questions. They're going to want to know. They genuinely are going to want to try and understand what the path has been to get you to that place and to come up with goals and targets for treatment while you're, and if safety is a primary concern, they're going to spend a lot of time on that first day assessing safety, coming up with safety plans and trying to sort of identify in the program what are the resources that you can use when you're feeling unsafe? Mm-hmm. There's so many questions that you're asked initially. Again, like you're emphasizing, it's such a collaborative process. It's not like you're brought in and the, the treatment protocol is 100% laid out. Like this is being adjusted based on what your needs are. So even the safety plan, like what has been helpful for you in the past with coping with urges or when you get anxious, what skills do you like to use and really making sure this is going to be effective for you. And I would say other random things that that come to mind is like there's lots of activities, probably lots of arts and crafts, like lots of different ways to express what you're experiencing. It feels very much like being at a new school because you're thrown into a new environment with other teens and you're all just kind of like getting to know each other and, and introducing yourselves. So much TV watching and movie watching. Most times you don't there's not a lot of time like scrolling on TikTok or on your phone. So when you're doing an activity at night, you're watching a show together or doing a movie. And so it's not all just therapy 24-7. It's lots of normal activities, routines that again would transfer after you leave treatment. And you're, you're reminding me that one of the other big barriers I hear from some kids about going to residential treatment is falling behind in school. Yeah. And, and trying to reassure kids that school is a part of treatment when you're in residential care. So you will be doing school and you don't need to worry that you're going to come out and have to repeat a grade. 
Oh, no. Yeah, 100%. And even me, I took a medical leave of absence for one year, but I did the summer semester, caught up on things. I was on track. I was able to apply to college. The world continued to go round. And I think it's such a reminder that without your mental health, you really don't have anything. You're not able to pursue your education or these interests or a career because your mental health is such a foundation. And so, yeah, very, very important reminder. Is there anything you wish that teens would be aware of when pursuing mental health treatment? Any myths or things that they knew going into treatment that people want them to get better or that it's a very collaborative experience anything that you were like I wish they came in day one and this was just an understanding I mean ultimately I wish and this is really for kids who are maybe not sold on treatment there are there are young people who come in asking for treatment like mm-hmm. I have that first appointment and ask the parents you know like why are you here and they're like the kid brought me here <laughs> yeah we ask to see a therapist but for the kids who aren't at that place. I A, wish they understood that I am not an agent of their parents. Yeah, yeah. I think their parents are really important partners and really important people in their lives, and we're going to want to involve them. But I'm not here to do the bidding of your parents. I'm here to help you and figure out what's causing you suffering and struggling and try and affect change so that you can lead your best life. And I often say to kids, if I think they have a sense of humor, that in the first visit, that my real main goal is that I never see them again. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not here to take your money. I'm not here to sort of see you forever. I'm not here just to put you on medication. In fact, I'm only going to put you on medication if it is really indicated and necessary. And that your best interests are sort of like the guiding light, the true north of of treatment. I think it's really hard to understand that and feel that when you're in a dark place yeah I also love the the way of thinking about it of like if you have a therapist or a psychiatrist who's in your corner and truly working with you you would suddenly have this highly trained professional to help you advocate and get things from your parents if you're like I want them to validate me more or I wish that they would stop getting mad at me for not cleaning my room you have this person who has been highly educated and can be like From a therapeutic perspective, we really do think that asking about the room being clean 12 times a day is not great. And you have someone in your corner. You have someone helping you make these changes in your family relationships. And it's kind of funny to think about it that way, because in a lot of ways, it's true. You have someone helping set those boundaries and advocate. And it's a a lot more of a skill set than you on your own. You have you have an objective outside professional who is not there to do anything other than try and improve your life. Yeah. And often I'll hear from young people, but I don't need a therapist. I have friends. And my response to that, I have many different responses to it, but one of them is that friends are wonderful. They're really important. I want you to have them and I want you to talk to your friends about the important things in your life. But your friends are just that. They're your friends. Your therapist is there to be supportive of you, but also push on you at times and therapy may be uncomfortable at times but you you need an objective outside person who can tell you what it is when it's happening and and that you can develop a rapport with that is a true back and forth and trust yes absolutely I love that. When you have patients come in, are there any mindsets or approaches or questions asked that you're like, this is great. We love to see this. I know when I first got to residential, I was like, I don't want to be here. My parents said I have to be here. This isn't going to work. And then before I actually began, there had to be that shift of like, okay, 
I trust you guys to help me. I know that there's evidence to support this and I, I want to get better and I hope I can get better and let's see how this goes. So is there anything like that that's helpful to kind of like do that internal work as you're kind of cultivating that willingness and entering the the therapy world? I mean, honestly, I, I think what I love to hear is an openness to just exploring opportunity and possibility. You know, the idea that, and this is really hard as a teenager, I remember well, even though it was a long time ago, like that, that maybe you don't know everything and that it feels like you do. But... It definitely feels like you do. But when a young person comes in and says, I'm really miserable, I'm unhappy, or I'm really anxious, I don't want to feel this way anymore. And I want to do whatever it takes to sort of feel better. That's obviously ideal, but just an openness to exploring what might be possible is sort of music to the ears of, of a yeah. therapist or a psychiatrist. Absolutely. And it's also just such a helpful reminder to have that how many times in your life are you going to have an entire team of people that are just there to support you and care for you and want to see you thrive? Like there's not many positions that you're put in where that's the only goal is just to help you be more effective and happy. And so that's something that is really amazing about treatment that sometimes gets lost is everyone's just there to support you. And it's a really unique experience in that way. The caveat to that would be that support doesn't always feel good. Oh, 100%. <laughs> right? Yes, like, yes. A good therapist isn't always going to just say, oh, I'm so sorry you feel that way. You're going to be like, well, you got yourself in this situation. So pity yeah, party so is a little lower. Tough support, right? Yeah. But a good therapist is going to deliver a message to try and shift your thinking in a in a way that doesn't lead you to feel bad about yourself, yeah. but may challenge you to think about things differently. Absolutely. Any last advice for parents navigating this process and then for teens as well? I think on both fronts, the biggest thing is just ask questions, lots yeah. and lots and lots and lots of questions. And if anything doesn't feel right, ask more questions until mm -hmm. it either feels right or until you say, you know what, this is a no-go. I don't yeah. like this. And, you know, I think at some point you also have to trust, right? So once once you get to a certain place where you feel like, okay, this person is good, where I, I find a lot of struggle is when I've, we've got a good rapport, but then we come up against something and it feels like that trust isn't really there. And then yeah. we can't take the next step around the treatment because maybe it takes some risks around some sort of exposure. I mean, I'm an anxiety disorder OCD person, so I, I think a lot about kind of how to help anxious people including parents, tolerate distress, distress yeah. in those situations. So questions, lots and lots and lots yeah. of questions. I remember writing down, like literally on a napkin, we went to go get lunch before I officially started at 3 East. And I was like, what will my typical day look like? Which therapist am I actually meeting with? When can I call my friends? Like those were my questions. My parents were like, so how does DBT work? Are you actually doing DBT? What are the different ways that we're involved? And mine were just so simple, but having that clarity was really, really helpful. And so there's no bad questions. These are things that probably tons of teens have had questions about before. And you can even ask the other teens as well. I remember that was one of the biggest things on the first couple of days, whether it was at IOP or residential or therapeutic boarding school, 
asking them questions being like, okay, but like, what is it like when we start going to school? Or what is the routine on the weekends? Or what are your favorite things to do? And just getting a real feel for what the community is like and what to expect. And everyone has been in the same position before. And so they'll be more than happy to, to answer those questions. Absolutely. And if they're not, then that tells you something about the program. 100%. Yeah, yeah. If people want to learn more about Ohana or continue to follow along with all the amazing work you guys are doing, where can they do that? Yeah, so we have a website. So if you go to the Community Hospital of the Monterey Peninsula, you can navigate to the Ohana website. If you were to Google Ohana Monterey, California, you'd get a lot of information there. You'd get to our webpage. The webpage is under construction because we're very much under construction. We're a new program that's being built both literally and figuratively. Our building will not open until next summer. So our services are still small right now, but growing quickly. So if anyone is planning to have a mental breakdown in about a year or so, you're going to have a great place to go to. (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're providing outpatient treatment and IOP and PHP level of care right now. And when the new building opens, we'll be doing all of that in a larger expanded way, plus have residential adolescent treatment that will be in a couple different tracks. But one of those tracks will be a DBT-based residential program. So. Amazing. I found IOP and PHP programs to be so helpful to really solidify those DBT skills and really just practice the the skills in the context of having routine getting up and going somewhere rather than just being in like the residential setting and so it's amazing to hear that that's a resource so if anyone is in Monterey the links will be in the show notes and thank you so much for answering all my questions I know this is going to be so helpful that was it was great it was so nice to see you Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of She Persisted. If you enjoyed, make sure to share with a friend or family member. It really helps out the podcast. And if you haven't already, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also make sure to follow along at at She Persisted Podcast on both Instagram and TikTok and check out all the bonus resources, content, and information on my website, ShePersistedPodcast.com. Thanks for supporting. Keep persisting. And I'll see you next week.